0: Before I get started, I want us to have a little time of interaction, okay? So within the people that are next to you, I want you to answer two questions. Ask questions and then answer the two questions. Question number one, how would you describe Jesus to someone who didn't know him? And question number two, how would you describe the Jesus that you learned about as a child, Okay? So how would you describe Jesus to someone who didn't know him, and how would you describe Jesus that you learned about as a child? I will give you a minute and a half. Go. You don't know One, I was just playing. So I, I'm, I want you to keep those answers that you heard, the answers that you gave uh, in mind as we, as we move through today. You know, as we grow and mature, so many things about our lives change. I mean, things we took for granted as children become questions that need answers, and thing we thought, things that we thought we believed uh, end up nagging at us for evidence of some proof and if you grew up in a church-going family um, like I did, you may have a set beliefs that you've learned about what it means to be Christians. Or if you're new to this, this Christian thing, um, you may be wondering, like, what is all this about? And today, I, I hope that we can challenge each other. I hope everyone can be challenged um, as we as we take a look at Jesus. Hopefully, maybe a little bit different look at Jesus, and try to take some steps forward uh, to follow hard after Him. You know, I took a, I, I walked around the church, and this is going to sound terrible, but it's not. We do not have a picture of Jesus hanging up in our church. It's not a bad thing, okay? But I was looking for a picture of Jesus um, because most churches will have some kind of picture of Jesus hanging up. When I was at Claxton First United Methodist Church, um, an absolutely amazing church where I started my youth ministry career, there was actually the same picture of Jesus um, at the bottom of the stairwell, and then when you got to the top on the second floor, there was the same picture of Jesus. Um, it was a little bit creepy because it's like, what's up, Jesus? And then you go upstairs, and it's like, oh, you're still here. Um <laughs> I mean, it was. It really was. It really was weird. Um, But that picture of Jesus, and you guys probably know, like, it's not exactly. You know, they're all like a little different, but they're all mostly the same. Those pictures of Jesus looks safe. He's usually European looking. He's usually docile. Looks content. He's got blonde hair, blue eyes, and this weird, like, glowing face aura thing about him. Um, Now the truth is is we don't know what Jesus specifically looked like and artists throughout history have painted images of him and then they've added in their own cultural and their own physical traits Um, and in the same way that pictures on the wall can get Jesus wrong sometimes Christians can get Jesus' teachings wrong. Uh, Oftentimes, Jesus gets confused with like this super sweet angel or like this fun-loving brother instead of like this radical, revolutionary leader of a movement that he was. I mean, in a world where justice is a relative term, where people's basic rights are being ignored, it's politically corrupt, Jesus spoke about a new kingdom where the last are first, the lowly are lifted up, and the poor are blessed. I mean, this is really radical stuff. And I was actually just describing the world that Jesus was in when he was on earth, but it could easily be considered in what we're living in today. So is Jesus' radical message still relevant today? You bet it is. We live in a world where racial tension, government mistrust are thick in the air. I mean, there are people in the Caribbean who are living on United States soil that have not had power since September 6th. And then there's people who see that stuff and they just have no idea what they could even do. And they just look on in horror at these things. So what does this rebel Jesus have to say about people In those situations. Um, There was about three years ago, I had the high school guys over to our house. We were just hanging out eating hot dogs and hamburgers and more hot dogs and hamburgers because that's what you do with high school guys. Um, And we just, we happened to have the news on and there was video coverage of Chinese government officials going into people's houses who had a church in their home, was kicking them out, putting on the street, and then a wrecking ball was being put through their house. They were tearing down people's houses as they stood there and they watched because they proclaimed to be Christians. So, how does this rebel Jesus speak to issues of today? Now, I use these examples because if we're not careful, our faith can become stale and we can become uh, what's uh, kind of jokingly called the frozen chosen you know, these Christians that think that the church is just a building where you go once a week or twice a week if you come on Wednesdays, and then you leave without a thought about living as a true disciple of Jesus Christ. I mean, even our youth group and our children's ministry can get to be like this sometimes too. Um, You know, you show up, you eat some good food. I actually heard a kid one time on Wednesday night called that food church because um, that's when we have our Wednesday night supper. I absolutely love that. But they show up. They eat some good food. You could play an awesome game. Um, you sometimes hear a message that might mean something to you, but then you go home never to think about it until next Sunday morning. And what this world needs is not a building full of Christians raising their hands, but a bunch of Christians who are willing to follow Jesus into the world with hands reaching out. The world needs our faith to matter to us. It needs our feet to put the faith into action. I mean, how many of us had had our faith because our parents had it? And we've been writing their faith for the past 30 or 40 years. This true gospel of Jesus, the true gospel of Jesus, isn't watered down. The true gospel of Jesus is not safe. I don't know if you knew this, but the first two years of Jesus' life, he lived in Egypt trying to escape a genocide that King Herod had started. So, if we really look at Jesus' message, it might seem a little threatening to us, and that's okay. Because remember, Jesus didn't come to start a religion, he came to start this countercultural revolution that we're invited to be a part of. So, what does it mean to follow Jesus? As Caroline just read earlier, uh, Jesus was praying in private, and his disciples were with him. And he asked them a very important question. He says, "Who do the crowds say I am?" And they answer with some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others or one of the prophets from long ago. And then Jesus asked the more poignant question, "Who do you say that I am?" I took an uh, in, introduction to the New Testament course when I was getting my undergrad, and um, My professor at the time said that that question is the question of the New Testament. Who do you say I am? Now Jesus did not guarantee that his followers would have a trouble-free life. He did teach them hard truths. He made no promises to them about easy living. And in Luke... 9, 23, and 24, Jesus said, Whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. And some were unwilling to pay this price. In Mark, we actually read about a rich young man who was eager to experience what this Jesus guy was offering. And when the young man asked what he must do to obtain eternal life, Jesus gave this unexpected response of go sell everything you have give it to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven then come follow me and as many other aspiring disciples would do both during and following Jesus' ministry on earth that rich young man walked away The 19th century British pastor Charles Spurgeon once noted that there are no crown wearers in heaven that were not cross bearers on earth. Jesus Christ does not give us a feel good message that will easily attract a crowd. In John we actually read that many of Jesus' disciples after listening to some of his more difficult teachings turned back and left and no longer followed them. So claiming this rebel Jesus requires this radical reprioritization of all that we deem valuable. So in the case of the wealthy young man, the priorities to be reordered were money and possessions. But sometimes the demands can become even greater In Luke chapter 14, verse 26, it says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be a disciple. Let me say this first. I preached on this, uh, or I did a lesson on this with my middle schoolers and high schoolers, and I immediately told them, please don't go home and tell your parents that you hate them because Jesus said to. Um, that's That's not what I'm going for here we are also called to reprioritize our very relationships that we have. So Jesus doesn't want me to hate my wife. He doesn't want me to hate my kids. But we're called to reprioritize our relationships and he makes it abundantly evident that my allegiance to him as Lord must supersede all else and everyone else in my life. That can be a very tough pill to swallow. So, Jesus is calling us into this revolutionary lifestyle, but what is a Christian lifestyle? And right off the top of our heads, we might say a, a Christian is someone who goes to church regularly, prays sometimes, maybe participates in a class or a Bible study, but is that really the lifestyle that Jesus modeled for his followers? Is that all that we should be known for? You know, some people might say the Christian lifestyle is less about what we do and more about how we act. And sadly, for too many of us, the accurate description of how we act is judgmental and hypocritical. I was talking with um, someone not too long ago who says that they really enjoy the religion of Christianity but they have been burnt by a church in the past. And so they don't agree with the whole going to church part. I mean, is that what Jesus modeled for us? You know, we get so caught up in our, our, our church commitments that we forget to be the church. We forget to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Jesus. We've said yes to salvation and are safely hanging out with the saints until we get to go to heaven. We treat salvation like fire insurance. We've made our faith personal, we've made it private instead of outward and radical. But if faith is only about my salvation, if faith is only about my ticket to heaven, then we are getting it way wrong. Our priorities are out of whack and we need some adjustment. Because, see, Jesus came to lift up the poor, to heal broken hearts, to proclaim freedom for captives, to be about justice and mercy. His salvation is not about our getting a one-way ticket to heaven. We are saved from sin so that we might lead a life of discipleship, of mission, of walking with Jesus down the narrow road that he talks about in Matthew chapter 7, verse 14. Jesus was and still is constantly challenging his followers to serve the poor, to serve the oppressed, to serve the outcast. I know as a, as a youth pastor... Parents always want what's best for their kids. And I remember there was one time whenever I was uh, um, visiting another church and the youth pastor there that I was hanging out with had done some inner city outreach and had some kids come into the youth group then and he had parents coming up to him and saying, hey, these kids I will say need Jesus but they don't need Jesus around my kids. I've seen that stuff happen. And Jesus is challenging us to serve the poor, to serve the oppressed, to serve the outcast. In Matthew chapter 7, he says that everyone who hears his words and actually puts them into practice are like wise men who build their house upon a rock and not sand. He says in Matthew chapter five that his followers are salt and the light of the earth, the thing that preserves and gives flavor, the thing that is a beacon to all. So our task is to tell everyone, here is the place where you could find justice and relief and mercy and hope and joy and freedom. We're called to shine our light and point to God. God. So what does Christ's radical lifestyle look like? You know, even as, as, as people, we can merge our personal salvation with the social missionary gospel of Jesus to show the world around us what God might look like. You know, in, in the book of 1 John, it tells us that God is love. And whenever we show love to someone else, we show them what God looks like. How cool is that? How cool is that? That when we show love to someone else, it's not us showing them love, not just us showing them love, but it's showing them who God is and what God looks like. Following Jesus means making everything subject to God's authority in your life. It means that God has set you apart, has anointed you to proclaim a different kind of good news in the world. When the world preaches health, wealth, and prosperity, the gospel of Jesus preaches wholeness, riches and glory, and generosity. When the world preaches despair, disappointment, and distrust, the gospel of Jesus preaches hope, grace, and faith. A revolutionary lifestyle for you And a revolutionary lifestyle for me means putting our allegiance to God first before our allegiances to our country, to our wallets, to our culture. It means that we proclaim good news and we work for justice and mercy for the oppressed. The church, is, uh, the church of Jesus Christ is not simply a gathering of believers huddled together until they get to go to heaven, which is actually what the book of Second Thessalonians is like. Paul is writing to the people in Thessalonica saying, hey, go, actually go to work, because people were selling all their possessions and sitting out in the streets waiting on Jesus to come back. So instead, the church of Jesus Christ is a gathering of called out people who are all in for the sake of Christ, for the bringing of his kingdom on earth and for the binding up of the brokenhearted here on earth. You know, it's always a good time to ask tough questions about ourselves, about our church. It's always a good time to ask tough questions about our youth group, about our children's ministry. Where have we accommodated our lives to worldly values instead of kingdom values? What are we modeling for other Christians? Challenging ourselves in this way is what the new birth in Jesus Christ is all about. Like we read in John chapter three when Jesus talks to Nicodemus about being born again. Being born again is like being transported from one kingdom this kingdom of the worldly culture to the kingdom of God's community yet we also have to give ourselves the same grace that Jesus extends to us I don't know about you but I am my own worst critic we are all a work in progress so at the time of our conversion we basically say to Jesus listen man I'm all in but I'm not perfect and we must trust Jesus for our salvation, knowing that left to our own devices and our own resources, we're never, we will never be good enough to have earned that salvation by ourselves. But our righteousness our righteousness is not our own. Our righteousness is in Christ and through what Jesus did for us in his death on the cross and resurrection. My official faith journey has been going on for just over 15 years now. And I am still in the process of detoxification from all that the world preaches and practices that does not reflect God's kingdom. So, how would you describe your life as a Christian now? Would you call yourself a Christian now? Is it radical and revolutionary or is it safe and predictable? Because here's the thing for us today. We have a lot of choices in this world about what or whom to follow. We can go about life the way we want it, making decisions only for ourselves and our own advantage. We could say that Jesus is not who he says he is. We can make idols of everything in anything that we want, we have the same choices about our belief in Jesus that C.S. Lewis wrote about. He said that Jesus could either be a liar, could have not have existed, or he was actually right. So, do we call Jesus a liar, a lunatic, or do we call him Lord? Or go a step further? Are you, call, are you okay with calling Jesus your Savior, but you're not okay with calling him your Lord? Do you get those two different things? Calling Jesus your Savior is saying, I know that I, I can't reach salvation on my own, and I need someone to help me with that. But calling Jesus your Lord is going a step further of, of giving your wants and your desires over to God's wants and desires for your own life and for his kingdom. If Jesus is the Lord of our lives, then our choices, our words, our actions begin to look like his. He becomes our teacher and our friend, the one with whom we want to soak up every minute and hang on to every word. If Jesus is the Lord of our lives, then we take on His radical lifestyle of loving our enemies, of giving away our things, of offering grace instead of revenge, yielding our first place spot to someone who needs it more. We say no to destructive lifestyles and we say yes to freedom and generosity and joy and abundant life. We say no to injustice, oppression, and despair. And we say yes to justice for all, release for captives, and hope against hope. It's all about the most important question that you will ever have to answer. Who do you say Jesus is? And that's where we are with this rebel Jesus. The direction that we go is determined by the answer to that question. Who do you say Jesus is? And many of you may may be at a point where you want to end up at a life of freedom and generosity and joy and abundant life, but you keep ending up in a life of despair and loneliness and depression and selfishness. But Jesus offers grace to all. This free gift of grace he offers to us no matter how many times we want to end up in that life of freedom and joy and abundant life and we end up in a life of despair and loneliness and depression and selfishness, no matter how many times that happens, Jesus is there always offering us the free gift of grace. You know, sometimes we struggle to live a life for Jesus because our culture is so sick So saturated with this selfish ambition to get whatever it is that we want right now. Instant gratification. I work with middle schoolers and high schoolers all the time. And if you don't text back within the next 10 minutes, then you are no longer their friend. That becomes their thought process sometimes. Not all the time. Sometimes. Everything that our culture tells us is that we should have what we want when we want it. And Jesus doesn't become a factor in our decisions. He's just someone that we talk about on Sunday mornings. We come up with excuses about why we can't do the teachings of Jesus right now. You know, in the book of Luke, uh, Jesus actually told a parable about that exact same thing. He talked about a person who wanted to throw this huge dinner party. So he sent his servants out to go uh, and get his friends and invite them to the party. And when they get to his friends, the first one tells him that he just bought land and has to go check it out. The second just bought five teams of oxen and has to go test drive them. And the third says that he is still on his honeymoon. Notice that they give the same excuses that we give. We can't follow Jesus because our possessions, our jobs, or our relationships. You know, you read that and you start asking, who buys land and doesn't look at it first? Who buys five teams of oxen and doesn't test drive it first? Who buys a car and doesn't test drive it first? Do you put your relationships before God? Putting these things first... Relegates Jesus to this lower status in our life, and we're supposed to live this revolutionary lifestyle for Jesus. But there is one thing that I know for sure that is that all of us will have to answer the question daily who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that we would remember to answer the question, Who do, you, who do we say that you are? We pray that it would, it would always be on the front of our minds. Lord, we pray that as we answer that question, that your love and mercy and joy and the abundant life that you give would change who we are so that we become more like you. Lord, help us to have the courage to answer that question each and every single day. In your name we pray, amen.